Hello and welcome to this episode of Thermonuclear Takes from Physical Attraction. These are the episodes where we talk a little bit about topics that are in the news, uh, in the world of finance, in the world of tech, in the world of science. And in this case, we're going to be talking about the stock market and how it has become increasingly divorced from reality. So in this episode, I'm going to explore something that's been a real concern for me lately in the light of the COVID-19 crisis, and which may also be something of a concern for you. And this is the stock market becoming increasingly divorced from reality. I have to warn you yet again, of course, that this is all very newsworthy stuff. If this isn't the kind of thing you're interested in, then please wait for the next normal episode. But towards the end of this, there's going to be some opinion in there about why I think this is a problem and what we could do about it. And then as a bonus for having listened to all of this stuff, you will also get uh, some housekeeping on where the show is going next and some listener questions responded to. But first, I want to describe this problem that we're talking about today. And I think the best way to express it is just in the stark, pure statistics. In February 2020, before the COVID pandemic hit economically, the US had an unemployment rate of 3.5%. In May 2020, that was 13.3%. It's since declined, but it's still high at around 8% as I write this in October. Unemployment quadrupled from February to May, and it's still over double what it was. Driven by these layoffs and less work available for people who are on casual contracts, total hours worked has fallen by a quarter. Thousands upon thousands of small businesses are dying. On average, they've lost a fifth of their revenue. In some sectors, like leisure and hospitality, where COVID shutdowns really prevent people from going into these places at all, half of the revenue has been lost, and other businesses, of course, cannot reopen at all. Even some big companies are struggling, although they are tending to do better, as we're seeing by the rise of things like Amazon in the midst of this. No one is investing, of course, amidst the uncertainty caused by the pandemic, and few people are hiring. GDP, that flawed measure of any economy, shows that the aggregate economic activity is down. By many measures, we are living through the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression as a result of the pandemic, the impact it's had on the globe, and the measures taken to try and contain it. According to the Brookings Institute, quote, COVID-19-related job losses wiped out 113 straight months of job growth, with total non-farm employment falling by 20.5 million jobs in April. The COVID-19 pandemic and associated economic shutdown created a crisis for all workers, but the impact was greater for women, non-white workers, lower wage earners, and those with less education. And for that, they cite Stevenson in 2020. The situation is similar in the UK and Europe. We have taken some different approaches here in Europe, where we have furloughed a lot of people. The government has paid their wages, keep them temporarily uh, in a state of sort of semi-suspended employment. But we know that when this furlough scheme wraps up, there will be a lot of people who will end up being unfortunately unemployed at the end of that. I think we all know that the economic picture is quite bleak and will continue to be so for some time. Many of you listening will know what these effects look like or mean in your own life. And this is in spite of some really unprecedented measures that have been taken to try and keep the economy afloat during this. But many people still look to the stock market as the barometer of the economy. They will look at the Dow Jones or the Standard & Poor's or the FTSE in the UK to figure out whether the economic times are good or bad. In light of all of this, you would expect to see something pretty grisly given the levels of economic turmoil that we've just described. Well, we did, briefly. In the initial panic, as the West and investors realised that the pandemic that had been raging in China for weeks was not going to magically disappear, the Dow did plummet. It was in freefall. It fell by about 37% in less than a month. The word unprecedented gets bandied about a lot, but that is pretty unprecedented. Yet even as the shutdown continued, the unemployment losses worsened, the deaths began to hit, and the crisis began to hit all of us deeper and deeper. 
the stock market recovered. By the end of August, even with this terrible economic situation, it was back where it had been at the end of January, only a percent or two off the highs it had reached before the pandemic crisis bit. It is hard to put it any other way. If you are still in this world of a misconceived notion whereby the stock market is the ticker of the economy, then you have to think that there's a very real divorce here from the number that the stock market gives you at the end of each day and the real economy. It's become divorced from reality in that sense. As businesses have failed, people have lost their jobs, consumer spending has nosedived, as governments have frantically tried to hold the whole system together, as we've all plunged into the worst economic crisis in a long time, the stock market has remained very high and buoyant. If you look at the Standard & Poor Index, it's slightly higher today than it was at the prior to the crisis when I wrote this. The Nasdaq briefly crashed in March along with everything else, but that's now 11% higher than it was prior to the crisis. To anyone looking on who used the stock market as their only real indication of what was going on in the economy, as many still seem to do, it would appear that we are in boom times. Crisis? What crisis? I want to talk about why this is happening, and I want to talk about what some of the consequences are. And naturally, it's a pretty huge question, and this is far from my area of expertise. So as I often say when I'm talking about things that aren't in my main areas of expertise, you probably know about this stuff better than me, in which case please get in touch and let me know your opinion. So you should regard what I'm saying as as speculation and opinion, albeit that I will always try and back up what I do say with evidence. Part of what is occurring, of course, is that a lot of carnage is being consumed under these headline figures for, quote, the stock market, as some whole aggregate thing. Some businesses have been collapsing and laying people off. Disney was a good example, with all of its parks closed and its films delayed. Others are making huge profits and soaring in value, as they have a bigger market share than ever before because of the crisis. Amazon is an example of that, and in fact you can see that Amazon is sort of taking profits from things that wouldn't be listed on the stock exchange, like your local grocery store, because you can't go there, and so you're buying from Amazon instead. That's why their shares are up 50% from before the coronavirus, and why Jeff Bezos is worth billions more than he was this time last year. But then if you aggregate all of these companies together, you sort of fail to reveal that there are some big winners and some big losers out of the current crisis. And some of these big winners, especially companies like Amazon, are concealing the fact that there are big losers, with the majority of companies still trading around 20% off their highest values from before the pandemic. So obviously the net effect of this, even when we're talking about companies that are big enough to be in these big stock indices, is that the economy is being concentrated more and more into the hands of fewer and fewer people. I think another part of what is happening is that stocks are the newest form of saving. Traditionally, when the economic outlook is bad, people are supposed to take their money out of assets that are perceived as risky, like stocks, and put them into safer assets like bonds, high-interest bank accounts, gold, or even just all your money in a sock under your bed. But now more and more people are looking on investing in the stock market as their version of saving. Robinhood is an example app that a lot of people talk about. It is just one example. Five years ago it didn't exist, but now it has $20 billion of people's assets stored in there, mostly small investors squirrelling away a few thousand dollars on average. That's small compared to the total value of the stock market, but add up all the different ways that people invest in stocks and it does get substantial. This is even more true of the big institutional investors. Around 37% of the stock market was owned by retirement funds in 2015, according to the Tax Policy Centre. So as much as $8 trillion is there in these retirement funds in 2015. Where once some of that might have been in safer investments, like government bonds or high-interest bank accounts, Much of that wealth is now concentrated squarely in the stock market to get the most possible growth. 
This is, of course, particularly true of the wealthy who have more money to save. What the richest people do, therefore, disproportionately influences the stock market. Another part of this, of course, is that there's a bit of a vicious cycle here. Who suffers the pain the most in the pandemic economy? Well, we've talked about it. Small businesses and workers who've been laid off. They're not included in the stock market. They could all go bust, and it may well even boost the large companies which are getting extra business. And it will certainly do not that much to harm the stock market. And half of Americans own no stocks at all. Predominantly the poorest Americans who have few savings. The situation is similar in lots of other countries. And of course, the poorer you are, the fewer stocks you own, and the less impact you will have on the market, depending on what you do with your money and how much money you have. Now, if you throw the pandemic into the mix, I mean, we've seen this, again, this differential impact. Many of the industries that are suffering the most, we're talking hospitality, restaurants, shops, etc., employ a lot of people who are less wealthy. The wealthy white-collar office workers and computer programmers can do a lot of their work from home, and they are less likely to become unemployed during the pandemic. Not that there haven't been layoffs in these sectors as well, just that they're less likely to be. If these people suffer, these people who don't own stocks, it really doesn't affect the stock market at all. They don't have stocks and they don't buy stocks, so the fact that they might all be suffering much worse consequences will have little direct impact on the stock market. The only indirect impact might be a sort of delayed trickle-up impact as they spend less, because poorer people will have to spend much more of the little money they do get on basic necessities to survive. Full disclosure here, this is not personal sour grapes for me. All my money is in the stock market, with the vast majority in a range of different renewable energy companies, all of which have done pretty well over the last five years, and especially in this crisis. And there's the rub, you see. When it comes to individual investors, wealthier people are often keeping their jobs and maybe even spending less because there's nothing to do. That money is often going into the stock market. At the very least, they're not forced to sell their stocks to pay for living expenses, and so they can wait for the crisis to pass. Poorer people might be suffering the ravages of unemployment, but as far as the stock market is concerned, as long as these big businesses remain viable, it doesn't matter. The vicious cycle here, obviously, is that the Americans who own no stocks at all benefit very little from a strong stock market. A growing stock market is an engine of inequality. The more wealth that you have, the more wealth that you get when stocks grow. If stocks grow 7-10% to a year, investors who have a million in the stock market can pay themselves... $70,000, $100,000 for doing nothing other than having wealth. And then you think of the billionaires who will make millions in similar fashion, and you get the picture. Whereas the people who don't have the money to buy stocks benefit only indirectly at best. And as wealth and income inequality increase, there's only so many restaurants that billionaires will dine in who will only employ so many waiters. There's only so much disposable income they can actually spend, even if you live a life of absurd luxury. And so much of that wealth just sits in a portfolio somewhere as assets under management continuing to grow along with the stock market. These are all reasons to emphasise that the stock market is not the real economy, but instead to do with the confidence of a bunch of investors, who are clearly skewed financially towards those who have more money. It can't be any other way when you consider uh, the the weighting. Uh, you, you know, a million people's dollar is worth one millionaire's million dollars. You know, that's that's how it works. And part of that confidence, I think, comes from a conviction that the investors have that they will not be allowed to fail. And this is where the central banks come in. We're talking about the Federal Reserve, Bank of England, DCB, etc. One of the things they have done is to slash interest rates to extremely low levels, which is encouraging people to spend and businesses to borrow and stimulate the economy as much as possible rather than saving. As we've talked about before on this show, you have quantitative easing programs taking place where Bank of England, Federal Reserve, ECB inject large amounts of money into the markets. Over the course of the latest rounds of QE in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Fed has injected around $2 trillion into markets through quantitative easing alone. 
add this to the generous government report, again, something like $3 trillion in all throughout the various different programs that have been used, some of which will have ended up bolstering the stock market. And you're seeing a very big, substantial injection of money into the system. We've talked before on this show about how QE, buying up government and corporate bonds using the sort of monetary might that the central banks have, has tended to overwhelmingly to inflate assets like stocks. The idea was that companies with a little more liquidity and money available to them might invest in new plants, hire new employees, etc. But even the Bank of England has said that the main impact has been to inflate asset prices, as too many companies simply buy back their own stock or speculate on the financial markets raising the price of the stock and so on, with the additional liquidity that they add. In the midst of the COVID crisis, though, not wanting the market to collapse, central banks have doubled down on this policy. When people see that the central banks are creating new money to this extent, buying up all of these assets from banks and corporations to encourage them to spend more, they are often concerned that creating all of this new money will cause inflation. And in a sense, it does. Inflation is simply when you have too much money chasing after too few goods and services that exist in reality. In this case, though, QE is predominantly pumping money towards people and institutions, like banks and corporations, that are liable to buy stocks and have a significant amount of their money in stocks. It's not like the QE trillions are all going to pay for loaves of bread, driving up the price of bread. That's not how it works. The unique thing about the COVID crisis is that because so much of the economy was shut down, In many ways, the money has not had anywhere else to go. Here I'm quoting from an ABC News article. It says, quote, Since the March market crash, the Fed has pulled out all the stops to help buoy the financial system, slashing interest rates further, unveiling a quantitative easing plan, buying corporate bonds. We've never seen liquidity pumped into the crisis in that degree ever in history, said Saunders, the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. Because the economy during the worst of the pandemic was basically shut down, he continues, all this liquidity basically boosted the money supply, but it couldn't find its way into the real economy. But all this liquidity had to go somewhere, and it went not just into the stock market, but every market has done well. Junk bonds, precious metals. Another commenter adds that the Fed's quantitative easing policies, which were also rolled out after the 2008 crisis, helps push up the price of treasuries, which, by market forces, help keep up other market prices. While the Fed isn't buying equities, Goldstein said, it's buying treasuries and corporate bonds and they are lending money to firms in all sorts of ways. That's a big reason why stock prices are up despite the pain in the economy. End quote. The other thing, of course, to remember is that the stock market itself is about investor sentiment. As anyone who's ever invested knows, and unlike all of the fancy economic models which like to pretend otherwise, a stock is simply worth what someone is willing to pay for it. The underlying company could have zero assets, It could be a joke of a company like Nikola, which only has ideas for cars and a truck that has to be rolled downhill. And as long as someone is willing to buy stock in that company, for whatever reason, that that values the company at $20 billion, that is what the company is worth, at least for the purposes of that one stock sale. There is an apocryphal story about the South Sea bubble, where the, the first sort of joint stock corporations were incorporated and people started selling stocks to each other and there was a big speculative mania for buying these stocks, Suddenly they were being traded around. This was in 1720, so these things took the form of people running physically across the town to sell each other stocks and shares. And um, at one point, one adventurer said, I am raising money for, quote, a company that will leverage a venture of great advantage, but none are to be told what it is. So no one knows what this adventure is, but it sounds like it's got great advantage. So they bid up the price of this stock to ridiculous values. And the person who was selling the stock was then never seen again. And, you know, I was reading this story, it was in David Graeber's book, Debt, and I thought, 
hang on a minute. <laughs> you buy stock in a company before you know what the company is going to be doing. Well, listeners to our episode on Nicola will know that that's just called a special purpose acquisition company. That's a SPAC. So <laughs> everything old is new again. And the same instruments that existed in the South Sea bubble in 1720 have been reborn for the modern era. But anyway, the point is that the, the market is about sentiment. And so if investors believe that the stock market will stay strong and stay up, then it will do that. And this becomes something of a self-fulfilling prophecy at times. Investors realise that when the stock market crashed, the Fed and other central banks simply couldn't allow that to happen, and pumped in as much money as was required, and that in fact they would continue to pump in as much money as was required to boost the stock market. So the investors have faith, in other words, at least for the moment, that the central banks are simply not going to allow stock markets to crash, because they apparently view their primary responsibility as making sure that that line stays up, regardless of whether there are any negative consequences to that. And as long as investors believe that the central banks can prop up the stock market, and that governments will do whatever is necessary to prop up the stock market, that's a huge force that is pushing the value of stocks to remain high. This analysis is echoed by Professor Rajan Menon in an article about our COVID-ravaged economy. He says, quote, No, we aren't all in this together, if by together you mean anything remotely resembling equalised distress. A Bureau of Labour Statistics release, for instance, reveals that September's 7.9% nationwide unemployment rate hits some groups far harder than others. High-skill, high-wage workers have gone far more lightly than those whose jobs who can't be done from home, including restaurant servers and cooks, construction workers, meat packers, house cleaners, agricultural labourers, subway bus and taxi drivers, first responders, retail and hotel staff, amongst others. For workers like them, essential public health precautions haven't just been an inconvenience, they have proven economically devastating. These disparities in the steps the Fed has taken, including keeping interest rates low and buying treasury bills, mortgage-backed securities and corporate bonds, help explain why high stock prices and massive economic suffering have coexisted, however incongruously, during the pandemic. The problem with bull markets, however, is that they don't bring direct gains to the chunk of American society that's been hurt the most. Nearly half of American households own no stock at all, according to the Federal Reserve Bank, even if you count pension and 401k plans or individual retirement accounts. And for black and Hispanic families, the numbers are 69% and 72% respectively. Furthermore, the wealthiest 10% of households own 84% of all stock. And I want to make this point, I, I can't remember who said this quote, but it, it, it's a famous economic quote. And what they said is that people will always tell you when you talk about these things, they will say, well, you need to keep the stock market afloat because that's the savings of old people and the savings of pensioners and so on. And yes, that's true. It's very true. And there are plenty of individuals, you know, the other half of American households who do own some stocks who would be financially hurt by a stock market crash. But the point is that even though many people would be hurt a little bit by a stock market crash, the people who are hurt the most by it are the people who own 84% of all stock, and that is the wealthiest people. So politically, the, the wealthy people always say, you have to keep the stock market afloat because that's where all of the retirees and pensioners have their money too. But in reality, the people who are benefiting the most from policies that disproportionately act to keep the stock markets afloat rather than bailing out ordinary people is unfortunately, you know, that, that is going to be the people who have the most will benefit the most, as we've talked about the stock market being an engine of inequality in this sense. And so, you know, if you're really worried about pensioners and them losing the value of their pensions, there is something you could do about that. You know, there are alternative policies you could consider where you think maybe we inject less liquidity into the markets and we compensate them in some other way. You know, I'm not coming up with anything specific here. Just to say that the counter argument you'll always get will be, 
that there are ordinary investors in the stock market as well. And the point is that, yes, there are, but if you want to count those as the, the bottom 90% of America, then they only own 16% of the stock. And so policies that benefit them by keeping the stock market afloat benefit the wealthiest 10% five times more. So that's the way to look at that. Another thing to point out, of course, away from monetary policy, the things that central banks do, is the things that governments have done in the form of fiscal policy. Now, many governments have responded to the pandemic by extending loans to businesses, often making borrowing very cheap. Governments view their role as protecting the jobs that exist in this crisis. We see this in the furlough scheme. I mean, someone like me would much rather that they accepted some jobs won't come back and employed people to do socially useful things instead. But in the meantime, they are loaning lots of money to companies and propping them up. And this gives rise to more and more of the so-called zombie companies. Companies that aren't actually making any money and haven't for a while, but are allowed to stay afloat by their access to cheap debt that they don't have to repay that quickly. They can shamble on for a little while longer while borrowing more money. This has been rising steadily for years, from 8% in 2008 to 13% last year, and perhaps as much as 15 to 22% of companies can now be classified in this way. So government fiscal policies have kept a lot of companies in suspended animation, at least for the time being. So for me, it feels a bit like a sort of wily coyote economy in a sense. There are lots of places that have actually run way over the cliff edge, their legs are circling in the air, but they haven't quite noticed yet, or gravity hasn't noticed them yet, however it happens in the cartoon. This is, of course, very similar to the upbeat sentiment of investors who are keeping their money in the stock market in spite of a horrendous underlying economic picture. I don't really think we need to elaborate on what's likely to happen next if all that easy credit is no longer available. So these are all parts of what's going on when we see this bizarre divorce between the stock market and the real economy in which many of us live. We know that there's less underlying actual activity, less goods and services being produced in the world around us due to the unemployment, lack of investment in real projects that's actually happening. And we know that there's a great deal more financial froth on top, exemplified by the exuberant stock market and the weird bubbles forming around technology and pharma that we've discussed in recent episodes. The rise of these zombie companies and the masses of QE that have been pumped into the markets. The speculation that you see even around things like companies that have already gone bankrupt like Hertz, where their stocks are being bid up and down by various people. So why should you care? Before the COVID crisis even happened, I'd written my script on technology, inequality and existential risks, which we released over four episodes earlier this year. And you will remember that part of what we looked at there was Walter Scheidel's book, The Great Leveller, and its thesis that economic inequality inevitably increases in societies until something... Usually something very violent happened, a disaster, a catastrophe, a revolution, or something happened that required massive government mobilisation, like a war, which finally reversed the growing trend of inequality. Don't forget, to pay for the Second World War, in many countries the top rate of income tax shot up to 80-90%, and that was for many, many years, well into the 1950s and 60s in many countries. This obviously acted to help reverse inequality growth, and of course governments massively stimulated production in the real economy, in things like armaments and so on, employing soldiers and industrial workers en masse for the war effort. This was the type of government stimulus that actually reached people who weren't already wealthy and predominantly focused on returns in the stock market. At the time, we wondered if perhaps the COVID-19 crisis could prove to be the thing, the violent event, the extreme rupture, that reversed the inevitable trend of growing inequality that we've seen in the last few years that set us back down the path, down something less unfair and something more sustainable than we've seen really since the 1980s. But it has instead turned out to be almost the complete opposite. 
And you can see why when you consider how this compares to historical events. I mean, we have this unique situation where the economic damage is not necessarily caused directly by the pandemic, but by attempts to suppress it. Compared to the Black Death, the reason that that led to less inequality was because so many people died that the few workers who survived could charge more for their labour. Well, nothing like that has happened. All of the power is with the, the wealthiest individuals in society. It's not like people are saying that they can now charge more for their labour because of COVID. This disease is not deadly enough to do that, which obviously should be a good thing. And compared to then, we have governments who can pursue these policies, QE and so on, that support the stock market. That There was nothing like that level of financial complexity that existed uh, in, in the, the era of the Black Death. As I've said many times, this growth in the stock market, it's an engine of inequality which allows wealthy people to accumulate more wealth, while the people who don't own stocks and the majority who don't own very many lose out. Now, this is not going to immediately manifest itself in inflation in, say, food prices. Because wealthy people aren't just going to spend billions of dollars on bread. At least, these things won't happen immediately. Although, of course, eventually people aren't going to keep all of that money in the stock market. But they will instead spend it on some level of real things, and perhaps leave it to the people who have a greater propensity to spend it. But this is to do with this concept of the velocity of money and how quickly it moves through the system, and that's not really something we're thinking about here. However, insofar as this does lead to inflation in the price of ordinary goods and services, you think it would harm poor people more because the problem is that it, it damages things that wealthy people do buy, and those are the things that are to do with social mobility. If you pump in a lot of money at the top where this does cause inflation, it will reduce the purchasing power of people who don't get that money. Advocates of trickle-down economics argue that doing this means that wealthy people can start businesses, pay higher wages, and so on. But what if they simply buy back shares in companies instead, as we've seen over the last few years? What if median wages don't grow up? Because they haven't. This is exactly what we have seen according to a Pew Research article of 2018 by Drew De Silva, the pre-COVID. It's been going on for a long time. He says, quote, After adjusting for inflation, however, today's average hourly wage has just about the same purchasing power it did in 1978, following a long slide in the 1980s and early 1990s, and bumpy, inconsistent growth since then. In fact, in real terms, average hourly earnings peaked more than 45 years ago. The $4.03 an hour rate recorded in January 1973, the height of liberalism, had the same purchasing power that $23.68 would today. A similar measure, the usual weekly earnings of employed full-time wage and salary workers, tells much the same story since 1979. Wages have grown in dollar terms, but not in real terms. Meanwhile, the wage gauges there have been have gone largely to the highest earners. Since 2000, the usual weekly wages have risen 3% in real terms among workers in the lowest tenths of earnings distribution, and 4.3% amongst the lowest quarter. But among people in the top tenth of the distribution, real wages have risen a cumulative 15.7% to $2,112 a week, nearly five times the usual weekly earnings of the bottom tenth. And you see, th this has been with the idea of trickle-down economics with us for a number of decades now. So we can't expect that this increase in inequality will cancel itself out through these trickle-down effects. I mean, in fact, in the US, with the UK a similar story, though slightly less awful, we see that this has never happened. The 90-10 ratio, the ratio of income in the top 10% to income in the bottom 10%, has increased from 9.1 in 1980 to 12.6 in 2018. So it's just risen relentlessly over the last number of years. In terms of wealth, it's a similar story. I'm not sure that we can expect, then, that economic policies that result in a disproportionate flow of assets to the wealthy 
will eventually benefit everyone without increasing inequality in the process. This has never happened before. So these policies then, if they are indeed inflating the stock market and thereby inflating the wealth of the rich, it may not lead directly immediately to inflation in, say, food prices, but it does in other things. It inflates bubbles in the stock market, like the ones that we've described, which have been the main focus of things like the SoftBank series, but also the speculative nature of the vaccine stocks as well. Of course, before the bubbles do burst, some people will get rich off them, but no one really makes money from a bubble. You know, your, your losses are someone else's gains. The things that wealthy people buy a lot of, though, they will see inflation. Like houses, for example. <laughs> These will place the inflationary pressure from this kind of asymmetrically distributed relief. House prices have remained amazingly high amidst the crisis, helped along in part in the UK by policies like freezing stamp duty, the tax collected on the houses, at an expected cost of £20 billion to the Exchequer, and to support the house market during this time, because the people who really need help in this crisis are the people who are buying houses or more houses at this moment in time. The result, of course, of these policies that have led to a flow of assets to the wealthiest is more buy-to-let landlords and more expensive houses, making it much more difficult for young people or first-time buyers ever to afford one. Between 1971 and 1985, when my parents bought their house, the average house was four times the average wage in the UK, but today it's over eight times the average wage, higher than at any point since 1901. And of course in London it's even more obscene. And this in turn, of course, is a vicious cycle. Rich people own houses and stocks. These inflate in value, as these policies may disproportionately benefit the well-off. Stock owners can earn dividends. Homeowners can rent them out as buy-to-let landlords. The accelerating cycle that occurs is that you effectively earn far, far more money by simply having money than you do by actually working. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking all this inequality stuff sounds very left-wing, then you have to think to yourself that the value we're talking about here is whether you get more money for an honest day's work than you do for being rich in the first place. And I think that's a, a, an asset that we need to rebalance in our society. That's that's a point of view that we need to get across and that we need to talk about. And, you know, when people talk about increasing taxes as a solution to it, maybe the tax you increase is not income tax, but capital gains tax instead, so that people who are earning money in this way uh, are, are paying more back to the rest of society than they would otherwise. And of course, the problem with this is that, again, with these things inflating in value, you know, if you want to be someone who is able to save money in the stock market and own stocks, if you want to be someone who is able to own a house, and these things are inflating in value, then it's going to be more and more difficult for you to get on that ladder. It's going to be more and more difficult for you to get in that game. And it's going to be more and more difficult for you to put a significant amount of money into uh, home equity that's inflating or, or to have access to these stock market investments. Now, this is, of course, self-evidently not very fair and, of course, ultimately unsustainable. Yet we see that the COVID-19 crisis has not been the great leveller. It has merely accelerated what was happening already. It is fueling and widening the economic divides between rich and poor, between generations, between areas and demographics within countries. The impacts in terms of health and the economy have fallen disproportionately on the poorest and the sectors that they're most likely to work in. I mean, of course, me in my university ivory tower, you know, I barely have to see anyone and I haven't got COVID yet. But if your job is involving you working on the shop front, then you're far more likely to get COVID if you live in a high density residential area or a city and your job requires face to face contact with people. You know, 
if you look at the bottom 10% of earners, 80% of those people work in areas that are either being shut down or they can't do their jobs from home. You look at the top 10%, only a quarter of them can't work from home or are seeing their jobs shut down. That's according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies. So people who need to find work, you know, they can be hoovered up in the gig economy, working in worse conditions, zero hours contracts for less money and benefits. When you have a lot of unemployed people, it means that the workers have less bargaining power with their employers. And of course, companies that do have little cash to spend now, maybe they'll try and automate or outsource what they're doing rather than employ more workers. If things are being done remotely and you don't even need anyone to be in your city anymore, you know, that goes both ways. It, it, it could be bad for the employees as well. And if, for example, you want to try and get rid of some people who were previously face-to-face contacts at a, at a checkout till, my, my, now might be the time where you would think, well, we're going to install some uh, robots to do the job instead, basically. So I think, unfortunately, a big part of why the stock market is increasingly divorced from the real economy is that a lot of people are just trying to keep it inflated, to keep asset prices inflated, because this type of recovery benefits people in the way that they really care about, which is in proportion to the amount of money that they already have. Um, It's not at all like the Black Death, which allowed uh, and rebalanced things towards people who were working, who could charge more for their labour and away from the lords who had gold to pay them with. Instead, we can see that the harshest punishment is falling on the people who don't own the stocks or houses, and that, unfortunately, there are people who are not only preserving, but even increasing their own wealth and influence in the midst of this crisis. And I think that is what is happening now with this rise in inequality. So with this great accelerator trend pushing towards greater inequality, we've seen the fortunes of billionaires rise by 30% during this crisis, they're now higher than they have ever been. And unfortunately, if inequality was bad before, you can see that we would need some massive redistributive effort simply to stand still at the level of inequality, already far too much that was the case before the crisis. So we have to run just to stand still on this thing. Now here we've predominantly focused on inequality within countries, but the inequality between countries is also set to get much worse, even though we have seen that the actual response to the pandemic has been very good in many nations that are typically considered less economically developed. Take a look at the response in Vietnam, for example, to see what I'm talking about. And this is perhaps in part because they're more used to dealing with public health crises and outbreaks of infectious disease. But economically, the damages are global. A UN human rights expert has warned that many low and middle income countries damaged by the global economic recession are facing a looming debt crisis of their own. Yufen Li, the independent expert on debt and human rights, she wrote, quote, Temporary debt standstill, emergency financing, debt restructuring and debt cancellation should be part of the toolbox of states, international institutions and the private sector in order to address debt issues quickly. The end game must be to free up fiscal space for investment in people's acute needs. End quote. I should say, by the way, that we discussed this issue of the inequality between countries in much more depth in the book club episodes on Jason Hickel's book, The Divide. These are already up early on the Patreon for subscribers there, and they will eventually be released to the general public. But if you want to get them early, head over to patreon.com slash physical attraction. That's my plug right in the middle here. So as I described in the episodes on technology, inequality, and catastrophic risks, you know, this isn't just a problem because it's unfair, because it means that we are wrecking the planet and labouring our lives away, predominantly to benefit a smaller number of people. But it's also inherently dangerous for the entire species, because it increases the number of disaffected people. It increases the number of people who are suffering. It increases the instability and propensity for chaos in our globally interconnected system. 
it enhances the risk of collapse as we try to deal with multiplying ecological and technological crises. You know, happy people don't have to destroy their environments to the same extent. Uh, people who don't have to deal with these inequality issues, they don't have these long-term health problems that they have to deal with. They don't have these long-term mental health problems. You know, they don't have all of these issues that concern them. And, you know, I think it's a very important issue to, to just explore the fact that this actually puts us all at risk and there's only so much inequality that our societies can really tolerate before they become extremely dangerous. That's the sort of deterministic end of, of Scheidel's thesis, which is that, in fact, perhaps these things become more likely to happen due to inequality. And I think in the future, you know, we, we know how many potential anthropogenic dangers there are. We have seen, if anyone needed any sort of reminding, that having a seriously well-funded global public health system would be a pretty decent thing to have that might help us try and avert or minimise the impacts of crises like this. So there's only so much of this that we are going to be able to tolerate before we raise the risk for everyone and the long-term risks for our our species as a whole, I think. And equally, when these huge problems are are dividing societies, are causing people to be trapped in these, you know, (laughs) unpleasant, miserable lives, it's, it's simply not what we want to see. I realise that this is becoming a rant and maybe a bit of a creed occur, but this is the world as I've been seeing it lately. And my sincerest wish is that there would be people who actually have the compassion and who realise that the number one thing we have to do is to get this trend of inequality under control, because it will be not only unfair and unjust, but also unproductive in the long run. All of these resources, all of these people, all of this time you know, dedicated to chasing and preserving and maximising wealth that then just sits around or gets invested in these bubbles rather than improving one iota of what actually exists in the real world, you know, conditions on the ground. All of the resources we could be devoting to developing technologies and social structures that would make us happier, healthier, more resilient to crises like the one we're going through now, better educated. Giving people education and training, funding research and development into new technologies, giving people the opportunity to lead happier lives and actually cooperate with each other, because I think that is... That is one thing that you have to understand about crises like this. You know, you see the division and hatred and resentment that's that's spreading through societies. And part of it is being driven by this inequality. You know, you you can't deny that, and you can't deny that some of the uh, convulsions that we have seen in in democracies in the West, these things don't come out of nowhere. You know, they're not. It's not that suddenly everyone wakes up someday and decides that they want to throw democracy down or vote for someone who is going to be, you know, illiberal or that you find offensive or anything like that. But, you know, it comes out of a, a place uh, partially of, of cultural change and partially of economic change as well. And, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> happy people who have better things to do don't spend all their time on the internet forums becoming Nazis, you know. that <laughs> It just stands to reason. And, you know, this, these are the things we could be doing, you know, is giving people education, training, funding these new technologies giving people opportunities to actually advance in their lives through their labours, which is the thing that encourages people to actually, you know, partake in the system, in any system, whether it's working for a company, whether it's working for, you know, the government, whether it's working for an organisation, whether it's voting and partaking in democracy. You know, it's no coincidence that the people who are most disillusioned with democracy are also some of the poorest people. I mean, all of this stuff is just increasing the amount of real resources that we actually have, the amount of real, you know, services and goods that we can provide for each other, as well as the amount of real happiness. 
rather than just the arbitrary numbers that we supposedly use to keep score of these things. And I think just seeing this destruction that we're inflicting on, on the planet around us to create value that is concentrated at the top. You know, I look at a lot of bright, hardworking, motivated people who are not getting as much of a chance as they should because of what we have collectively chosen to value and how we spend our time and efforts. And I see a lot of wasted potential, you know, even in physicists who go into finance and spend a lot of time trying to concentrate wealth at the top more effectively. You know, I, I see people who could be making the world a better place and who are trapped unnecessarily into into different things that, uh, that are more lucrative for them, I suppose, because of the value system that we have. And that goes before COVID, but I think COVID is accelerating it. And you have to think, is this the way we want to live? You know, I mean, the governments that we create and empower, is this how we want them to behave? I don't know what the solution is, nor do I pretend to know, but I think it has to be bigger than just crossing your fingers and hoping that things will go back to normal, or tinkering around the edges and hoping you'll be able to restore business as usual, because this crisis is just accelerating many of the trends that characterise business as usual. So, you know, we've talked about some of these ideas on the show before. Universal job guarantee that would give people a chance to work at something useful, something like a debt jubilee. You know, it's another interesting thing. In ancient societies, you used to have these problems quite often. Say there was a bad harvest uh, and you had a few wealthy lords. They would, you know, lend money to the various farmers who kind of lived on the outskirts of the city. And that money would be enough to keep them afloat through the crisis, but it would be at a high interest rate and, you know, they'd end up buried in a big pile of private debt. And this ultimately became a real problem for societies because these farmers couldn't repay their debts. Those were in the days where if you couldn't repay your debt, your children would be sold into slavery and your wives would be sold into slavery and all this sort of thing. So many of the farmers would take up arms against the people who were trying to collect money from them, or they would simply run away from society entirely and and leave the country and flee uh, their creditors. And so what happened was the king, realising that the levels of debt that had been built up in society were just completely unsustainable and were uh, destroying the ability of the economy to actually function properly. It was destroying the productivity of the farmers. The king's there thinking, (laughs) I can't eat interest rates, you know, I've got to get these farmers back working on side. And so they would use their power that they had by fiat to cancel out a lot of these debts and and settle up with the merchants and where the principle of the debt had had exceeded the, uh, sorry, where the interest had exceeded the principle, they would cancel that out. And that would free up resources when the system became too unbalanced towards debt. So, you know, this is not an impossible thing for us to to think about. You could imagine doing it in a more modern way, obviously. You wouldn't have the king sat there uh, wiping the slate clean, which is where the metaphor comes from. But you would instead have a central bank that would give people money that could be used to pay down student debts or whatever. Anything like that. Um, Mortgage debts, another example. Private debts, credit cards, whatever it may be. Something like redistributing and and refocusing of our attentions, though, towards solving problems that actually matter rather than whatever it is that the market demands, because the market is not always the most rational actor here. The markets are good for lots of things, but particularly in crises, you you question how valuable uh, that as your only priority really is. And, you know, I'm looking around for people who are proposing these kind of big picture solutions and trying to see where the roots of these problems are. And I'm hoping that they get the opportunity and then have the will to follow through on this rhetoric. But you see, sometimes I'm feeling even more cynical than that, and I'm not hoping that there'll be a sudden change of heart on behalf of people who can influence things if they want to. 
But instead, I sort of just wish that they had simple common sense to realise that, as the kings did, you know, in this debt jubilee era, the, the king is not cancelling the debt because he loves all of his servants and, and courtiers and the farmers who live around him. He's doing it because he realises that his entire society will collapse if he doesn't. You might be able to have a society that is profoundly and grotesquely unequal, but eventually the whole thing ceases to function. I mean, again, as I say, look around you, look at politics lately, since 2008-9, it doesn't exactly look like the end of history, does it? You know, It doesn't look particularly stable, even for the people at the top. And history demonstrates that this happens time and time again. And I don't believe that we can necessarily solve the problems that confront us and advance towards the kind of world that we would all want to live in. Not just, you know, veil of ignorance stuff, but that we would all want to live in, even if you do think that you're on the right side of this divide at the moment. If, if we simply allow inequality to spiral utterly and relentlessly out of control, if this is another step change in inequality that we're seeing now that doesn't get corrected somehow, I think that's going to be bad for everyone. And I don't want to live in that world, not if I can avoid it. Of course, you may have other opinions about what's going on. I apologise for having lots of opinions lately. These last few episodes of news, I've got a lot off my chest and I'm expecting to move on to more bread and butter, scientific, climate, technological, historical content like you're probably more used to. But I feel that this is important and it's occupying a lot of space in my mind when I want to write about other things, so I hope you'll forgive me taking the time to write and speak about it. However, of course, if you have another opinion, I'd love to hear it and I'd love to know what you make of what you've heard. You can contact me always via the form on the web at physicspodcast.com. That goes to my email. I try to respond to all inquiries. Uh, We're going to respond to some that have been uh, posed Uh, at the end of this show. And as ever, if there are lots of questions or comments that people have, I'm more than happy to address those in their own episode in the future. So this has been quite a depressing episode, and I feel like if you've listened this far, you deserve a treat or something a bit different. So I'm going to do some future of the show updates, and I'm going to do some responses to listener questions now in the last half of the show. (laughs) I've been getting some really amazing email from you all lately. Recall, of course, the contact form. I'll plug again on physicspodcast.com, where you can get in touch. And some of it raises some important questions that relate to previous shows. Before we get onto that, though, another major thing to say is that we're now publishing the transcripts of the episodes. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this stuff is scripted, can you believe? You can find those for the time being on physicalattraction.medium.com. So that's these Medium websites, you've probably seen them before. It's really just a temporary measure. For a while I've wanted to upgrade our website beyond the default one that they give you with Libsyn, but doing so in a way that still gives you access to the feed of episodes will cost some money and it would take time as well. So that's a long-term ambition. But for now, physicalattraction.medium.com, you can get most of the transcripts of the previously released episodes there. Now, these transcripts were never intended to be read. Um, There might be mistakes or inelegancies in them. I haven't tidied them up at all. And of course, when I go off script and improvise, that might not be in the transcript. But if you hear an episode and you want to look up a specific reference of something that was said, Uh, specific phrasing or whatever it may be, you should be able to find it there, and I hope they will be useful to people. I also want to talk briefly about the future of the show. If I release this when I plan to, we'll be coming at the end of the SoftBank series. There might be a few more on that theme. And then broadly, we're going to move away from the finance, tech, economic side of things we've covered just lately, I think. Subscribers to the Patreon who have access to episodes as I record them, rather than release them, will know that I have quite a few recorded already that will be released over the next few months. If you do subscribe to the Patreon, you can, of course, get all of those early. 
Many of these are the new Climate 201 series that will be the next major series that we're putting out there. As I talk about quite a bit, climate change is really my day job and main area of something approaching expertise, so the series is going to build on that. And the aim of this series is really to go in-depth on a number of topics around the area of climate change, mostly focused on the solutions that we can all attempt to pursue, as well as a lot of the definitions and the sort of debates that are happening for people immersed in the field. You know, if, if you were part of climate Twitter and you wanted to be involved in all of those arguments and so on, this is going to be a, a 201, a slightly more advanced course, which is going to talk about lots of different questions. I've actually phrased it as a lot of different questions, but we're going to be talking about things like whether we're all doomed, uh, renewable energy, the impacts of different greenhouse gases, the history of global climate politics and agreements, approaches to climate change that have been taken through the years, uh, negative CO2 emissions. We're going to talk about all the different approaches to reducing CO2 emissions across different sectors, agriculture, transport. We're going to talk about energy efficiency. We're going to talk about what a carbon budget is. We're going to talk about what climate change scenarios are for and how they're used, climate sensitivity. We're going to talk about all of these definitions of things that you may have heard of or that we may have mentioned before. We're going to go into some real depth, uh, real science, technology, history, uh, geopolitics, all this stuff. And it, uh, technological developments, finance, law, all this kind of thing. There's a very, very big range of topics that we're hopefully going to cover there. And my aim is to go beyond the basic coverage of the story. And by the end of all these episodes, you'll know almost as much as I do about this stuff and of course in answering these questions I will learn a lot more uh, myself about this and and sort of resolve some ideas in my own mind and get some ideas going about some technologies that I haven't looked into before things like hydrogen carbon capture and storage I'm also hoping to get lots of interviews with people I know in the field who I've wanted to talk to for a really long time there's lots of experts uh, on that list of people to reach out and interview um, but of course, if you have any questions about climate change that you want answered, then please do let me know, uh, and I will make sure to cover them. I really want to make sure this is a useful resource for people who are trying to learn more about this. Secondarily, on top of that, I'm also working on another long physics series. This is a bit more in the realm of traditional physics, which I appreciate that a lot of people are here for. Uh, I'm going to keep the topic a surprise for now. There are nine episodes that have been written already but I don't want to start releasing any of them until I am sure I can finish the series and release the whole lot, because I don't want to end up stranded in the middle of a series at some point in the future. I nearly did with Fusion, where I got to the end of the series uh, and I had to write the last few episodes very quickly because uh, I, I'd run out of episodes queued up to release, basically. Um, but rest assured, you know, however, between these subjects and masses of other ideas that I have, uh, people I want to interview who... Uh, whose books I'm reading and so on, there will hopefully be a lot of future episodes to come. Of course, I would be remiss if I didn't say that doing this show takes up a, a big amount of free time, and so any way that you can support us are greatly appreciated. Getting your emails, feedback, reviews, and if you can tell other people to listen to the show, that would be something I would really appreciate. We're in an age now, especially in the last couple of years, where basically every big celebrity out there is getting a podcast, because they've all realised that if you have a vague following can basically just leverage that to get thousands of dollars in ad revenue you know even hillary clinton has a podcast now um, and the thing with these celebrity shows is they can afford to spend the big bucks they can advertise on all the podcasts people listen to you know they can get themselves featured prominently in the itunes store and all that kind of thing here this show it's just me and aside from my patrons and some small donations and your encouragement i don't get any help from anyone it's independent, and you know that, um, that everything you're hearing is is uh, one guy's research and one guy's opinion. 
But I do it because I love researching these topics and writing about them, of course, but it's even better to share it with a wider audience and, and hear you know, the feedback that people have when, when they have enjoyed it. So whatever you can do to help us out, I, I really do appreciate. And thank you to everyone who, is, who has written and donated and the patrons who have subscribed already. I, I, I do appreciate so much that you would <laughs> kind of help me indulge in this stuff. And hopefully, you know, you're enjoying what we're doing as well. So that's the standard imploring bit over. Uh, let's do some listener questions and comment. So our crossover with the MMT podcast inspired quite a few listener questions and comments, and there are a couple that I think I should highlight because they expand and add to things that we said in a useful way. So listener Max noted that when we talked about the Eurozone and Brexit, we were all a little critical of the Eurozone. We were pointing out that, for example, it's difficult for the EU member states because they're no longer monetarily sovereign and therefore they don't have a chance to issue their own currency and sort of use all of the advantages that you have from being able to issue your own currency. So in effect, this might be an argument for Britain with its own currency not to uh, rejoin the EU and to join the euro. But the point that Max made was that you could also use MMT's argument to say that actually it's necessary for EU member states to integrate more closely together so that the European Central Bank can actually address more of their problems at once because they have a closer economic union. So basically, the issue you have is where you have lots of different countries with lots of different laws and lots of different economic conditions, uh, which are all sort of struggling um, to work on a monetary policy which benefits them all. And if the countries are integrated more closely together, perhaps that's not an issue anymore. It might be closer to how the Bank of England can address the concerns of Wales and Scotland and Ireland and so on. So I think it was a little bit unfair of us not to point out this alternative view, and also that there are lots of people in the MMT community who are pro-EU, and uh, the MMT podcast has a lot of episodes on that. So thanks to Max for flagging it up. I mean, it's an interesting question when it comes to MMT, and in general... We've discussed this idea that a government spending is not like a household spending because it can create its own money. Well, that's true of monetarily sovereign governments, but not, for example, the government of, say, an individual US state, which is not empowered to create its own currency. It's also not true of many foreign countries where the de facto currency is the dollar, which explains why you have these issues of foreign debt crises, right? If you owe debts to another country in their currency and not your own, being able to make your own money is not particularly helpful for resolving that problem. Whereas technically, the British government will always be able to pay any debt that it owes in pounds, uh, and it's not going to have any issue reaching the interest rates on the debt, for example, because it can just print more pounds, it doesn't have to obtain them from anywhere else. If you do want to learn more about MMT, which I'm still learning about, and in a sense deciding on how to interpret, then the MMT podcast is there, uh, Stephanie Kelton's new book, the deficit myth are good sources for uh, basic explanation. I also like James Quack's Economism for its treatment of how mainstream economists and mainstream economics not only gets it wrong, but also is sort of misinterpreted and uh, oversimplified. And a lot of people's ideas of economics are oversimplified and sort of from a economics 101 class, and they don't and they don't take into account a lot of the caveats that like a more in-depth treatment of the topic would. So it would be as if uh, people were running around thinking that the physical universe is just billiard balls on a table and they haven't sort of listened to anything beyond the 101 class. So, so that's a good book as well. Also on this topic, you know, I asked uh, listeners whether they wanted to hear about this stuff and listener Matt noted uh, something I thought was important. He said, quote, From my perspective as an engineer, economics is the study of the systems we make that determine how materials and energy and labour, etc. are divided. 
and if people don't understand how these work, then we can't design them to achieve the goals we want. We'll be, brackets, we are, at the mercy of those who do know and might not have the same intentions, end quote. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think it gives me an excellent excuse for expanding the range of topics that we discuss on this show, even if it is a little bit unusual, because, you know, the, if all I'm going to be doing is talking about problems uh, and issues and sort of saying, well, it would be great if someone would do something about this, but not exploring, you know, the ways in which we might do something about this and uh, the, you know, potential barriers that are stopping people from doing things about this and all this sort of thing, then that seems a little bit of an incomplete analysis to me. And also I find this stuff really interesting, so <laughs> it's uh, indulgent for me to talk about it, but I think Matt has a good point when he says that these uh, these things are all interrelated. Now, listener Eli noted that I made a mistake in the episode on Nikola, uh, so I'm going to quote from his email here. He notes that the actual deal between Nikola and GM was one in which Nikola played GM in shares and then agreed to pay for GM to build factories producing Nikola-designed cars with GM technology. If this factory were to be built, Nikola would have bought the cars and trucks produced and then sell them on for a markup. So although GM were probably just as aware as Hindenburg, the short sellers who produced that report, uh, which blew up the share price of Nikola, about how riddled with problems Nikola was, GM had nothing to lose. They agreed to a deal in which they were paid up front to build an all-expense-paid factory where the cars produced would immediately be sold to Nikola, end quote. So this is a good point. GM didn't just blindly throw loads of money into Nikola without necessarily doing their research in a, in a deal that has lost money for GM, in a sense. They sort of negotiated quite an interesting partnership where if things didn't pan out, they wouldn't lose out so much. And I did listen to other commentators after this episode who made the same point. So it's not like GM has just thrown billions and billions of dollars down the drain here. But what they did do is they effectively gave Nikola more credence and credibility than they should have done. And I think that Eli and I agreed that they obviously didn't do their due diligence uh, on the way into this company, or they would have known a lot more about the company. I think that they are going to take a, a big reputational hit, especially when you compare them to Tesla, given that it just seems kind of desperate that GM are spending their time chasing this technology that doesn't really exist. Um, it makes them look like they're trying to catch up. And indeed, the shares of both of these companies are still flying all over the place based on news of whether they'll salvage this deal or not. It's all far from final. Um, I have no doubt that there will be some more shenanigans going on with this company at some point in the future. Eli also wanted to know if I would do an episode on Tesla. Um, there are two things in the age of the internet that I've learned not to talk about, which is Tesla and cryptocurrencies. So if I ever did write on these subjects, I have my own views, you know, but it would be behind a paywall so that people can only throw rotten fruit after they've already parted with their money first. Now, I had a great discussion with listener Fabian about issues such as what actually gives currency values, whether it's MMT or referring to cryptocurrency. And I talked to Eli about Tesla, so if you can track down those two listeners who I've given you no contact information for, you can ask them, and I'll tell you that they will tell you what I really think. I have also had a few very in-depth discussions with listeners Glenn and David from California about different episodes of the show, so I wanted to shout out to them and say thanks for the support and for listening. Uh, David in particular, writing little reviews of each episode, I, I really appreciate that, that's such a nice thing to have. Um, one reason that I do mention both of these correspondents is that they both noted that they were interested in the philosophical implications of quantum mechanics. Now, I do intend to cover this at some point, but I hope that people will understand the bind that I'm in here. I mean, the way that I do things, I feel like to really talk about these philosophical implications of QM, they are fascinating, uh, they are well worth in-depth coverage, 
But if I want to talk about them, I need to cover QM, maybe even relativity as well. This is a similar issue with another topic that people have requested a lot, which is quantum computing. I want to make the show accessible to anyone, even if you don't necessarily have a background in the field that I'm talking about. So doing these more complicated topics unfortunately means that to some extent I have to build up to them. I do want to cover them at some point in the future, but I don't want to half-ass stuff that really deserves much more detailed coverage. I might try and figure out how to do some of it as a slightly more standalone thing and try to sprinkle it in, rather than doing my sort of standard approach, which is starting from nothing and then building up, uh, usually by introducing ideas in the order of how they were covered and discovered historically. Um, Partly because the historical narrative gives you something you can kind of pin yourself on and, and, and work from. And also because quite often it's easier to understand physics when you understand it in its historical context. Um, because you can sort of see, I mean, we're in a format here where you can't just write down the equations and say, these are the laws, uh, learn them, and here are their consequences, you know. Uh, we're in a format where it's much easier for us to do these historical narratives where we say, well, the reason they had to invent quantum mechanics was because the classical theory had this problem and all this sort of thing. Um, and then you elaborate onto it once you've introduced all of those principles. Uh, but of course, the problem with that is that it takes you to get like to episode 10 before you can start talking about Schrodinger's cat. Um, so I, I'm going to try and resolve that in some way. But it may just be that we have to wait a while until we get into the really long quantum mechanics series that will come at some point. Uh, but I don't know yet. But one question that David did ask me that is likely to be tractable here, though, was about probabilities. Uh, I thought it was an interesting question. So this is going to be the last uh, topic we cover here. And I hope he doesn't mind me reproducing a bit of the exchange. So he said, quote, in your summary of statistical mechanics, I was struck by the basic ideas as you presented them, particularly the breadth of their application. I do have a further question. Probability seems in different ways to be an intrinsic part of quantum mechanics and statistical mechanics. Is there a brief way to characterise how probability differs in each? End quote. Now, poor old David did say brief, didn't he? But that's not my strong suit, so um, I'll, I'll tell you my response. I said, quote, your question on the probability and the different natures it has in statistical mechanics and QM is a truly fascinating one, and I don't know if I'll do it justice, but maybe in a future episode, because it's an interesting area that got my mind racing on this. I would briefly summarise the key differences in the following ways. In statistical mechanics, probability arises due to our attempt to treat random fluctuations of a great many particles or subsystems that beh ultimately behave according to their own laws in a specific way. We want to go from micro-scale the laws that govern the motion of a single particle, to macro-scale, the laws that govern something like the motion of fluid or gas as a whole in the box. The classic example is these gas molecules in a box. Typically you have 10 to the 24, uh, 10 with 24 zeros after it of these molecules in the box. Uh, that's Avogadro's number. So that's the sort of number you'd have uh, in the box. And that's a typical number. In this sense, probability shows up as a, as a frequentist thing. If you observe the system by picking out individual particles from this box, then the states that you're likely to find in it are the ones that you will most frequently observe. We can see how this works. It's very unlikely that, for example, no particle should happen to be hitting one of the walls of the box at any given time, such that the box would have no pressure on that wall. Similarly, probability allows us to convert the microscale to the macroscale in the sense of averaging over a great many components of the system which have their own probability distribution, telling you how likely each little state is to happen. Some molecules will move much more quickly than average, others much more slowly, but their average speed determines the temperature of the gas in the box, 
and their average direction of their velocity determines things like any pressure imbalances within the box. Representing the many, many discrete particles moving around in the box with a continuous mathematical function, like a probability distribution, means that we can, for most intents and purposes, abstract away the fact that we are really dealing with a collection of molecules, each with their own discrete velocities and positions, and instead treat them by the macroscale properties that respond to that, that apply to that probability distribution instead. So literally, when you turn something like the average speed of a particle in a box into the temperature of the particle in the box, or when you turn something like the average direction of its motion into pressure, or when you turn the speeds into the internal energy of the particles in the box, say, what you're doing is summing over a great many different particles. Uh, you're summing over a great many different particles and the probability distribution that they have, essentially. So, for example, uh, that would be the partition function, where the partition function is the sum over all the different microstates that the system can have. So, in a sense, by adding up lots of these uh, multiplications of different states with the probability distribution, you get to these large-scale variables. And these large-scale variables describe the probability distribution. So, you know, the temperature tells you where the peak in the probability distribution for the speeds of the particles is, if that makes sense. So, you're abstracting away the fact that you're dealing with these many, many molecules, and you're just treating them like they're a probability distribution rather than a big set of numbers. Much like, for example, in election forecasting, one might abstract away the individuals and replace them with demographics that are supposedly predictive of voting instead. Now we come to the quantum mechanical case. Quantum mechanics is essentially concerned, at least where its effects become obvious, with individual microstates. Typically, it might be one particle. Here we deal not with probabilities, but what are called probability amplitudes. These add up and subtract from each other. When you square them, you get the probability. They're complex numbers, so this can be zero. When you square them, you get the probability, and these are complex numbers. So we say that the most complete possible description of a physical system is actually the set of probability amplitudes that describe the state that the system might be in. For example, for an individual particle, these probability amplitudes encode information about where you might find the particle and how quickly you might find it to be moving if you were to measure the particle. Technically speaking, before we make a measurement, the state of the system is simply indeterminate. The most complete possible way of describing the system is that set of probability amplitudes. When we make a measurement, the wave function of the system collapses, and it no longer can be described by that probability distribution. Instead, in a sense, we forced it into being in one particular state by making the measurement. So for example, if we measure its position, it will take on a definite value, whereas before it could only be described by this probability distribution. This would also be true of its velocity if we measured its velocity, but not both position and velocity at the same time because of the uncertainty principle. And the likelihood with which it's going to take on any particular value when we do do that measurement is specified by the probability amplitudes. So to summarise, Statistical mechanics is about representing macroscale systems that are made up of many small interacting components. We do this by, instead of keeping track of the properties of every individual component, representing their properties by a probability distribution that describes them all, and then looking at the properties of that distribution. Incidentally, I can't help but point this out, it's not just gas in a box we can use this for, but also for magnetism, which is defined by lots of little molecules with spins, and according to a paper I have to read at some point, uh, potentially something like an economy as well. 
An economy is a macro-scale system with many average properties made up of individual interacting components, which is you and me. As to how well that theory works, I don't yet know. End quote. But this is a little bit of a frequentist approach to probability because you're saying that the probability is about how many molecules you would observe with given properties. This corresponds to microstates of a system and how they relate to macrostates. In quantum mechanics, we're concerned with probability amplitudes, not just probabilities. These are complex numbers, which, when you take the square of their modulus, give you a probability. And specifically, QM tells you the most complete description of a system it's possible to give in physics is the set of probability amplitudes that tell you about how you'll find that system if you measure it. But once you make it the measurement, you collapse the wave function. In this sense, I suppose you could say QM is a little bit more Bayesian in that it sort of represents prior probabilities in an event occurring, although that's not quite right. If you measure the same system twice, it will be collapsed the second time, and therefore it will take on that specific position. So you couldn't really get a frequentist approach to probabilities in quantum mechanics. Only by preparing the system the same way thousands of times and measuring it relentlessly could you sort of construct a probability distribution that way. One key difference is the point of uh, determinacy and determinism. So statistical mechanics, uh, as it's constituted in the way we described it, is initially a purely classical theory because we assume that deep down, underneath our representation of this probability distribution, every particle does actually have a definite position and velocity. QM says no, they don't have definite velocities and positions, at least not until they're measured, and they also can't have them both at the same time. We can only talk about the probability of finding them when we do measure them, and this can actually be best expressed by probability amplitudes. So hopefully that does explain all of this a little bit more exactly. It's interesting to reflect on the different ways in which probability do come into these different fields of endeavour. Uh, but I think, I hope, that this will explain what we're talking about when we talk about probabilities in both of these different fields. And I think the topic of probability and how to interpret it here, particularly all the QM stuff, is, is complicated. So it's certainly something that we'll be looking to cover even further and in more depth and more accurately in the future. So having done most of the housekeeping earlier on, there's nothing left to say except if you do have any comments, questions, concerns, etc. of your own, please do send them in via the contact form on physicspodcast.com and I'll try to get to them in a future listener mailbag. Ditto if there are topics you want me to consider, people you want me to try and bug to get an interview, all that sort of thing. Subscribe to the Patreon for many, many future episodes to catch up on early. Um, after the SoftBank series is finished, we might take a week off from releasing so that everyone can catch up. But I'm not done with you yet. Until next time then, in this fraught world that we're living in, please do take care. Thank <laughs> you.